Spotify, Anchor.fm, Overcast Podcast, Apple Podcasts now. Anywhere you get your podcasting, this is On The Farm, a show dedicated to covering major and minor league baseball. As always, I'm your host, Matt Kovitz. And as always, joining me, Sam Shapiro. Sam, how are you? I'm good, Matt. Uh, I missed this last Friday. It was a very empty uh, day without being able to record. So glad we're able to catch up and go over all the great baseball that's uh, that's gone on the past 10 or so days. Absolutely. And that's the decision that we did come to just to finish this out the LCS and record afterwards. We will be on a more consistent basis in the future. But now that we have these great, great seven game series that we watched, I am over the moon with the quality of the baseball that has been on TV. And in a year where it didn't look like this was even going to be an option in October, I am so glad that even though it was a 60-game season, we got to this point. There are two teams left, the Tampa Bay Rays and the Los Angeles Dodgers, both one seeds. Just so, so happy. We do have to start, unfortunately, paying respects to a legend yet again. This time, Joe Morgan passed away. One of the best second basemen of all time, really. And on the field play is one thing, but off the field, he was a staple of our childhoods on Sunday Night Baseball with John Miller for years and years. A very, very somber year for a lot of legends in not just baseball, not just entertainment, just a multitude of people have been lost this season. And it is something to really reflect on that it just keeps getting worse. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if uh, was was Bob Gibson the first one we had to address on this show. Bob Gibson and then Whitey Ford, right? And so it's like it's it's very unpleasant to have to keep doing this, you know, on a weekly basis. And you know, I hope to God that you know we can we can break out of this pattern. But you know, obviously, you know, one of the great players of his generation, I think uh, he and John Miller, they were also uh, was that the MLB Two K or the show that they were? It was Two K. The show initially was Matt Vaskersian, Dave Campbell, and Rex Hudler, right? And so obviously for people, like you said, watching on Sunday Night Baseball, but a whole new generation uh, was able to get exposed to him, you know, through his work uh, uh, doing video game broadcasting. And so definitely a very big fixture in a lot of, a lot of young baseball fans' lives through that. Um, you know, obviously, you know, sending, sending good vibes and, and, and love to his family, the Reds organization. And it's, it's, it's terrible. It really is. Now, Morgan was a player, especially on his broadcast, who bemoaned modern-day statistics and analytics. But ironically enough, these analytics are what brought him into the conversation for one of the best second basemen, if not one of the best players of all time, was not a fan of wins above replacement. He had 100 and a half wins above replacement. That is a very high threshold. Honestly, underrated in that aspect because of the intangibles, really, that were the ones that he wasn't a fan of. He was internet famous for the Fire Joe Morgan website that was made by Ken Tremendous, a.k.a. Michael Schur, who was the creator of The Good Place, the creator of Parks and Rec, Moe's on The Office. So a guy who was in popular culture for decades and decades, both on the field and off. Rest in peace to him. We truly have to pay respects. Now moving on, I did say last week that I would be surprised if there were surprising personnel and coaching decisions that were that were made over the season because 60 games, I didn't think anything would really be coming of perhaps some underperformance. Boy, was I wrong. Rick Renteria out as the manager of the Chicago White Sox, truly the tank commander of baseball 
because in 2014, he was replaced by Joe Madden right before the Cubs made it to the NLCS in 2015 and then won a World Series in 2016. Renteria took over for Robin Ventura, lasted four years with the team, three years of struggles, and then finally broke out of it. Ended up losing to the Athletics in the eight-game playoff field this year. It is going to be a new era for Chicago as they try to move on and win some American League Central Division titles. Players are well-respected him, but fans on social media seem to be celebrating. I admittedly do not know enough about the White Sox to understand why they're so happy about it because it seemed like he was good and everyone liked him, but a new change is coming. Rick Hahn is looking at new managers. The White Sox are going to be a force with somebody else controlling them. Yeah. Uh, one thing just uh, I gleaned from observing from a distance, this was a White Sox team that spent a good portion of this summer in first place, arguably even contending for a pennant. Then you had a bit of a late September slide. You had Minnesota and Cleveland making up a lot of ground. And so if you're a White Sox fan uh, and you're anticipating a top three seed and then you end up in, you know, in, in seventh place in the, in the league, uh, that's going to be a little bit disappointing. Um, and obviously Renteria, very uh, experienced manager, respected throughout the game, but results matter. And I think one, one, one thing where there is a bit of a parallel to his tenure with Chicago, uh, we've talked a lot about this young White Sox core, uh, both in the middle of their lineup and this, this young pitching staff they're developing. And uh, the thought is clearly, um, or I thought was clearly, you know, you want a, a young, uh, a young manager to be able to come in, you know, connect with these guys, fire them up. AJ Hinch's name come out of suspension got mentioned. However, contrary to our assumptions, the front runner, uh, according to some of the media scuttlebutt, is none other than very old man Tony Larusa. You're kidding. I am not. Who I believe managed the team back in the late '80s. Sheesh, I don't even know who's on the Sox back then. Was, was Frank Thomas around uh, at that time? I feel like Harold Baines was there. Otherwise, not a very relevant franchise. What a friggin' then. name! I know Hall of Famer Howard. I haven't, haven't haven't heard that in a while. <laughs> the Larusa, though, it's very old school to go with very old men. Would you think they'd be going in this direction, even though as the game becomes more and more analytical, Larusa wasn't exactly on board with that, even though he did bat his pitcher eighth occasionally. Doesn't seem like the right fit, but he is known for his time being great on the Cardinals, being great with personnel. This could be a person to watch for sure. Yeah, I mean, he's won three World Series titles. He's he's won with multiple organizations. Uh, he clearly knows what he's doing, even if he's not the biggest disciple of, of, of analytics. I actually just looked up and to clarify, he managed the team from 1979 to 1986. So even though this is kind of you know fudging it a little, managing the same franchise five decades apart. That's got to be some kind of record. That's, for, that's, that's insane. Almost so I'm Casey Stengel nonsense going on back in the 40s. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hoping they hire him just like for that, that one piece of trivia, if nothing else. Um, I think what, one thing that would be very important, though, is making sure that he can fill out the coaching staff adequately with people closer in age to his players. Uh, not that that's you know, the end-all be-all, but I think that having, having that sort of young, recently retired guy who has the great baseball mind, but also the, 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 the personal characteristics you know, in a lot of the ways that teams are putting those guys in a managerial position. I think if you're going to bring in a La Russa, you need that uh, at a minimum uh, in, in, in your bench coach. I'm not sure if he has any interest in coaching, but I guarantee there's at least one person advocating for Paul Canerco to get a coaching role in this team. That makes too much sense for it not to happen. Again, like you, I've read nothing about his desire to uh, 
uh, you know, re-enter the game. It just seems like someone on sports radio is going to bring that up. And I'm glad, I'm glad that you're getting out in front of that. So, you know, props to you and for your sake, I hope it happens. I hope so too. That would be awesome. For the, for the, for the fan's sake too, though. I think that would be, that would be very cool. Obviously the, uh, star player of the one championship team of, uh, uh, most Wit Sox fans lifetimes. Um, that drought doesn't get talked enough about enough because the Red Sox had their 86 year curse broken the year before the White Sox was longer from 1917 to 2005. And they all, they just quite often they get forgotten about it. And even now. Yeah. I think especially with, um, all the hoopla that surrounds the other team in that town. First it was the Cubs with their curse, which put even the Red Sox to shame. Uh, and then you had, uh, when the Cubs got good this past decade, they did so building, uh, uh, a, a young core with Rizzo and Bryant uh, in a way that the White Sox just weren't able to do, even when they had their championship team, you know, that was a very well put together team, perhaps to Kenny Williams, but they did not develop that core that, that could sustain something like that. And so, yeah, for, for, for that reason, among others, they really have kind of fallen, you know, beneath the cracks, finally bring some, uh, some exciting young baseball to the South side of Chicago. And another reason for that, they were perpetually mediocre in the years following that world series appearance. Go back to the 2016, Matt Latos had an ERA under one through the first month and a half of the year. I think there was something like 22 and 10 and they ended up a tick below 500 before finally pulling the trigger on a rebuild. They just hung around for way too long being average. And now that they're at a good level again, they're going to be exciting to watch everything coming up on the South side. As we move forward, this is the most important story. Sorry to Rick. Sorry to the future White Sox manager, but the godfather of modern day analytics in front office may be leaving the game. Billy Bean, that is right, may be gone from baseball. Now, to preface this with some context, he's the co-chair of Red Ball Acquisition Corp, which is a company that is in talks with the Henry family about buying a 25% stake in Fenway Sports Group, which, as you can assume, owns the Boston Red Sox. If that happened, it would not at all be surprising that Bean stepped down and recuse himself and lose his interest in the Oakland A's. But Fenway Sports Group also owns a little town across the pond called Liverpool. And coming off a championship, Bean would be making the jump to European soccer, though not necessarily Liverpool. In this case, David Forrest would then become the A's president. This would be shocking. The man behind the modern day movement would be leaving after so long. Couldn't get his World Series appearance, but has really had, had, had a great amount of impact on the game and has pushed it to new levels of intelligence and decisions based on numbers rather than just a human element. Right. Uh, first of all, uh, they're not a sponsor, but I would be remiss if I didn't point out that Moneyball is now streaming on Netflix. Uh, if any of our listeners haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Great. That's film. a movie you put you put on and you just watch it from whatever point if you're flipping channels and you just keep going until it ends. Yeah, fant- fantastic piece of cinema. Brad Pitt, Jonah Hill. Uh, you got to love it. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is our how I think is my favorite minor character. He does a really nice job of uh, doing, doing what he can with that role. Anyway, back to the substance. I think that it seems very in Billy Bean's nature to look for some weird new challenge off the beaten path. You know, I feel like if it, if it weren't European soccer, it'd be some other, you know, arcane sport. He seems like the kind of guy who's just like a junkie for, you know, being able to hack something, which I mean, that, that, that kind of explains why he was able to, do what he did in Oakland. I think that he can, if he does choose to leave the game, he can leave knowing that he personally exerted such a huge influence on where, uh, on where the game has gone, uh, in the past, uh, 20, 25 years. I think not just with, uh, 
teams like uh, the Red Sox and the Cubs who uh, have melded a lot of his, uh, you know, that kind of uh, analytics with the traditional big market, you know, spending on free agents. But also this year, uh, you have a team in, in Tampa Bay who for the second time in their history, they've done what Billy Bean failed to do. They've taken uh, a small market team with extremely low payroll and they've built a non-traditional team, spending very little money, relying a lot on the numbers. Uh, their, their front office probably, you know, uh, is the only one that rivals Oakland in, in terms of that across the game. And here they are four games away from winning a championship. And so uh, to see this idea take hold in other small markets throughout the game and become kind of the, the preferred modus operandi, I think that's, that's a pretty dramatic impact for, for one person's philosophy to have. And of course, this isn't Bean's first rendezvous with John Henry. He was consulted after the 2002 season, if you've seen the movie or if you haven't, about joining the Red Sox. And spoiler alert, he stuck around with the A's until as recently as, well, he's still there, but as recently as October, this could be his last season. Would be interesting to see if he follows suit the second time around. Before we move on to the next question I have, my favorite Moneyball character is Royce Clayton, who plays Miguel Tejada. Just totally random. They needed a shortstop and they found one. A larger point that I want to emphasize, is there a brain drain going on in baseball right now? The pandemic certainly cut opportunities for the time being, and only just now are baseball operations departments starting to get filled up again. And even so, there have been a lot of furloughs and outright layoffs. There are long hours and initial low salaries and maybe scaring prospective new employees away. And in an era where front offices are mostly economics majors from Ivy League schools, there is less of an emphasis on scouting and there may be some more streamlined organizations. Do you think this is going to be a problem in the near future? Because for as smart baseball is, it's looking a bit exclusive right now if you want to break in and get your foot in that door. Right. I think one thing that uh, definitely gives some cause for concern, obviously a different league, but the NBA just recently released uh, figures telling up how much each of its franchises had lost over the course of, uh, of, of the shutdown. And there are some pretty, pretty large, uh, large numbers there. Uh, I think that um, unfortunately, a lot of what you just talked about, it's going to be very finance dependent and major league baseball teams, you know, they lost, they lost a shit ton of money as well. And so um, I think that even if, so you, 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 you mentioned kind of like the unattractiveness of some of these starting positions. I think that, you know, there may even be, a drop in how many of these teams are even hiring in the first place, which is unfortunate because I think uh, with everything that's gone on, you have a lot of really great minds with, you know, time on their hands, not a lot to be doing. There's, you know, a great market for, if they're, for, if they're people out there who have been you know, watching a lot of game film, pouring over statistics. Um, I can, I can almost guarantee you there, 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 there are plenty of these Ivy league econ majors who spent their uh, downtime doing exactly that. I think, you know, without kind of delving too far into, into, into COVID land for this show, if things are able to be somewhat close to back to normal later next summer, or, you know, perhaps, you know, everything's, you know, back to the way it was for the, for the 22 season, maybe there can be some sort, some sort of, you know, renaissance in terms of teams trying to open up their front offices again, you know, trying to build back up, but seems like it'll be slim pickings until then, unfortunately. Not that I'm looking, but I do peruse occasionally. The only clubs that have really been looked at have been offering these are the Mariners, the Twins, and the Rangers so far. And in the Rangers case, it's essentially an internship at minimum wage to start. And no disrespect to minimum wage by any means, but after getting the bachelor's degree, it's a little bit upsetting to see that this might be your only option if you want to break into the game. And that's just a larger problem with the sports industry. The problem with sports as a whole is they know that there are many people who are looking for an opportunity and will 
be okay with earning very little money. And it's a bit exploitative in that regard, especially now when finances are not at the highest point that they can be going to be something to watch and look for in the coming months and the coming years, just seeing where the GM shakeups and the analytic department shakeups are relying. Moving on, Dick Williams, you mentioned last time, moving from the Cincinnati Reds to a real estate company, they have their replacement. The new GM is Nick Kroll. So Sam, you get a bunch of seconds in a row to make any big mouth references that you can. You know, that would be great, except I've only ever seen snippets of the show. Um, oh, I just know no. that's, 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 uh, that's Nick Kroll's show. Um, I have to imagine though, uh, that, uh, Mr. Kroll will, will not be, will not be playing the part of the douche when he's moving into his new role. Uh, that was, that was a parks and rec reference. That's right. Crazy Ira and the douche. See, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm good for some pop culture stuff. So, you know, take, <laughs> take, take, take what you can get from me. Absolutely. Uh, I will mention the theme song. The Reds front office is going through changes. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> there we go. Now let's get to what happened on the field over the last week. We'll start in the American League and we'll talk about how we got there because we did not mention this last time. New York Yankees lost, of course. Game five was heartbreaking to watch. Mike Brasso, a role this Chapman, without going into the nitty gritty details, a home run off of the guy who throws 100 miles an hour, who for the second straight year gave up a decisive homer in the elimination game and started smiling afterwards in disbelief or in apathy, who knows. Rays win the game. Mike Brasso, of course, got thrown out by Chapman about a month earlier. The Yankees are not in dire straits, but not in the position I would like them to be, especially with the up-and-coming Rays who don't seem like they're going anywhere. Was there any Shattenford on your side watching these two AL East rivals beat each other up? Uh, tremendous. A tremendous amount. I will say that, you know, disappointing any of Yankees fans aside, that was a hell of a baseball game. Of course, of uh, course. Great pitching. You know, two teams who really were matching each other blow for blow up until that inning. Mike Brasso, though, talk about a guy who overcame a lot, undrafted out of college, played for, you know, a very small program, you know, Oakland University, that's up in the Horizon League. Worked his way up through the minors, was never you know, a ranked prospect. Uh, I, I dare say he did not come up at all on our, on our show back when we were in studio together. Uh, and to have his place in Ray's lore, arguably the, the biggest home run in franchise history. Take, taking our, you know, our fan glasses off of our respective teams, you know, that's just a great baseball moment right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great game. I was very, it was fun to watch, but also just eternally frustrating. This Yankees team was so inconsistent during the year should not have been the, the, the C that they were truly should have been much better than that. It's upsetting that they got to this point, just frustrating, frustrating, frustrating. Hopefully in 2021, they have a re-signed infield and DJ LeMahieu is still there. I'd like another pitcher as well. Tanaka. I'd like to have him back. James Paxton. I would imagine he's gone. Jay Happ. I would also imagine he's gone. Uh, it's going to be a long drought continuing. But I know I've, I am spoiled because I did see them win in 2009, but it's been a long 11 years since then. You also, uh, I, I, you, even though you may not have been aware for it, you know, that's, that's four titles in your lifetime. I, I did miss the first three though, unfortunately. I'm, even ca- though, I'm counting them. You were alive. You were on this planet. You know, it, it happened while you were here. I have nostalgia for a time that I can't remember because it must have been so cool from 98 to 2000 with how, especially in New York City, Everyone being on board with the Yankees, 2000 with the Yankees and the Mets must have been so awesome. And now we have that few and far between, even though the Yankees have been in the playoffs four straight seasons, haven't even gotten that pennant, which again, sounds spoiled, but 
listen, this is a team that's made it 40 times. Moving on to these LCS, the evil, evil Houston Astros taking on the baby-faced Tampa Bay Rays. In game one, a 2-1 to one victory for Tampa. Started out with a bang as Jose Altuve hovered in the first inning. This would happen quite a bit. Randy Arozarena tied up the score in the fourth, and then a Mike Zunino single in the fifth. Scoring was done after that. Blake Snell and Framber Valdez went blow for blow. Valdez had a quality start loss. Diego Castillo threw a bunch of pitches in the earlier series against the Yankees. When an inning and two-thirds scoreless for the save, a gutsy performance. Game two, a Manny Margot homer in the first set the tone. They went up 3 nothing and never gave the lead away. Charlie Morton did playoff Charlie Morton things. Five scoreless to outduel Lance McCullers, who gave up four earned, but seven strong, 11 strikeouts. Tampa Bay wins 4-2. to two. Now I'm sure the rest of the country is feeling a bit confident about what's going to go on. It's 2 nothing right now. The Rays are in a very good position. Game three. A 3-0 lead as they win it 5-2. This one could be over quickly, huh? Another Altuve early home run. A five-run eruption in the top of the sixth for Tampa Bay. All coming from a Jose Altuve throwing error, which was something that happened quite a bit this series. Joey Wendell single. Kevin Kiermeyer hit by pitch to load the bases. Almost broke his wrist. This was off of Anoli Paredes. And Willie Adamas hit by pitch to drive in the run. And then finally, a Hunter Renfro double. That was all she wrote. Yarborough was solid. That is Ryan. A meltdown by Paredes, as I just said. Game four, Houston wins four to three. Fine. A gentleman sweep is nice too. The Rays can win this in five. There was a third early home run for Altuve, as well as an RBI double. Game tied at two after another Randy Rosarena home run, but George Springer, the Connecticut kid, a two-run blast was the difference maker, and the Rays couldn't tie the game up again. Zach Grinke pitching in game four here, a great quality start. Glasnow was done in by the homer, even though he went six. Game five, Houston a Springer dinger to start once again, a Brandon Lau home run to tie G-Man Choi homer to tie the game up in top of the eighth, a walk-off home run for Carlos Correa in this game of openers, Luis Garcia for the Astros, John Curtis for the Rays. The Astros bullpen was better. Now be honest here, even though Tampa had the three to two lead, what was your confidence going into this series, especially after a momentum turner, such as a Correa walk-off where he bat flipped and started screaming. I mean, I thought, I thought that was the shift. I mean, to have a three nothing lead, to drop two games, especially in, in that kind of fashion, you know, that takes a lot of air out of the team. And you know, we were texting back and forth all last week, just you know, telling each other, you know, fuck, they're des- they're, de- they're 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 destined to do it. They're just they're so evil, but they're you know, it's 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 written in the stars. And it especially looked like that after after game six. If you want to get into that, we will absolutely. This is they were going to do it. Springer, Altuve, Correa played four runs in the fifth. Then some fireworks between game one starter Framber Valdez and Yandy Diaz for some reason. Diaz took a curveball and then just started yelling. And there was almost a bench clearing issue out of that. Houston won at seven to four. Blake Snell was chased. Framber very good again. A coming out party for Valdez really. He had a very good season and a very good postseason as well through three rounds. Game seven, the two best words in all of the sports. And Randy Arozarena, another two-run home run in the first. Mike Zunino homer in the second to make it 3 nothing. There was a Carlos Correa single in the eighth to cut the lead in half at 4-2. to two, But this one was over. The first World Series appearance for the Rays since 2008. Randy Arozarena earned his playoff MVP award. This was a fantastic series. And the Rays will be back for the first time in 12 years after they beat the Red Sox in 2008 in seven games. Is this the end of the Astros core? Do you think Springer seems likely to be gone? That's, that was all that was discussed on the broadcast. I don't think the window is closed necessarily when you have those hitters. And we'll talk about that until we're blue in the face week after week. 
but it's definitely getting a bit drafty in here. Yeah, I think that uh, it's going to be a slightly different looking Astros team next season, but given the amount of talent they retain, this is a reloading, not a rebuilding, as much as it pains me to say it. You know, even with Springer gone, even if they don't bring, uh, bring back Brantley, you know, they still have got Correa, they've got Bregman, you know, Altuve, unless the, the garbage can really played you know, that big of a role is likely going to have a bounce back year at the plate next year. Uh, Kyle Tucker, we've mentioned, took a lot of steps forward. Uh, and I think that pitching wise, just in terms of the arms they've been able to develop, you know, you got Framber Valdez, you got Urquidy, Christian Javier, an absolute revelation this year. Paredes, uh, despite his, his meltdowns in the playoffs, uh, was a very solid arm for them. Blake Taylor, Andre Scrub, Luis Garcia, they're just pulling these guys out of the woodworks. And so, you know, I'm very upset to be saying this, but I tip my cap to their, their player development guys. There's still a lot for Dusty Baker to work with going forward. And that's the frustrating part. Brent Strom and Baker can make a great team. Jeff Lina was actually on Houston television talking about the sign-stealing scheme. He essentially said he had very little to do with it and had very little knowledge of it. And some of the actors are still in the Astros front office. So that's a bit scary. We'll see what happens there. We will move on to the senior circuit. Braves and the Dodgers, another seven-game series. And this one looked quite a bit different for multiple reasons. Atlanta sports fans, we really have to pour one out for you. This has just been a rough go at it for the, your entire lives. Game one, Braves win it 5-1. to one. Freddie Freeman and Enrique Hernandez traded solo shots. The Dodgers stormed back for four in the ninth. The Braves stormed back for four in the ninth. My apologies. A moonshot from Austin Riley off of Blake Trinan. Then a Marcelo Zuna single and Ozzie Albies homer. Walker Bueller was shaky, gave up five walks, while Max Freed was great. Battle of uh, Harvard-Westlake and Vanderbilt there. Trinan was rough, and the Braves had a convincing lead here. Game two. This was once a 7 nothing Braves lead, but the Dodgers woke up in the final three innings, scored seven runs to make this an 8-7 victory. A harbinger of what was to come a day later. Ian Anderson was nice despite the walks. And something that we have to talk about, Clayton Kershaw was supposed to start this game. He was scratched for game two due to back spasms. He would move on to game four. And we will get to Kershaw in a little bit. Game three. Seven runs in the last three innings for the Dodgers in game two. How about 11 in the first to start? Capped off by a Max Muncy Grand Slam, I went to bar trivia night without any guilt of missing something important from the game, and they ended up winning. It was a sports trivia night, so we won $15 in a gift card. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So begins and ends the Kyle Wright postseason experience, I would imagine. He gave up seven and two-thirds of an inning. You're going to have to... He'll probably have a spot in that rotation next year, but he's going to have to shake that one off. Very Mike fulton esque performance. Game four, the Braves wake up again, 10-2. to two. Sixth runs in the sixth, plus an outstanding performance by Bryce Wilson. Essentially a newcomer. Six innings pitch, one earned run. Made this convincing win. Clayton Kershaw returned, gave up four runs over five. That postseason area, 7.2 for the series. Even though he had two good starts, one against Milwaukee, one against San Diego. He does have the clunker, as he is wont to do. Game five. Now it's a 3-1 lead. What do they say about 3-1 leads, Sam? I don't know. What do they say? The most dangerous lead in sports after the Oklahoma City Thunder started that trend, later passed off by the Golden State Warriors in 2016, and then also the Cleveland Indians in 2016. Game five, Dodgers win it 7-3. Two uh, Corey Seager home runs gave the Dodgers the win after being down 2 to nothing early. A.J. Minter was the opener, and he struck out seven over three innings pitched. Very good. The Dodgers started with Dustin May, and the bullpen got even better. The internet imploded on Friday night because Will Smith, the catcher, Hit a home run off of Will Smith, the pitcher. You could, you could say that uh, he got jiggy with it. Nah, 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 nah. Dodgers get the win. Game six, 
Corey Seager and Justin Turner back-to-back in the first. Cody Bellinger single up 3-0 early. Ronald Acuna double in the seventh. Made it a 3-1 game, but this was all she wrote. Walker Bueller was great, as was the bullpen, while Max Fried settled down. Game seven. I could not get over how good this game was. Just all in all exciting from the first pitch. Ozuna and Swanson put the team up 2-0 after two innings, but the Dodgers were really hitting balls hard off of Ian Anderson all night. A lot of loud outs, a lot of deep flyouts. I was following the game along on Baseball Savant, MLB's StatCast tool, and he had seven hard hits over 95 miles an hour in the first two innings. And it was very clear that he was not long for the night. A Will Smith single tied the game up at two. That was it. There was an Austin Riley single. And then there was a Kike Hernandez pinch hit home run, pinch hitting for Jack Peterson off of AJ Minter, three to three. And then Cody Bellinger finally having his playoff moment, a long home run, a long stare, a long bat flip. Dodgers have a four to three lead. The bullpen of Blake Trinan, Broodstar Gratterall, and Julio Arias dominant out of the pen. Unfortunate home runs off of Minter and Chris Martin. Very exciting. The Dodgers are going to make it for the third time in four seasons. Though Bellinger may have dislocated his shoulder in the celebration. That's just an interesting tidbit. The Braves really have nothing to worry about, I don't think, aside from a Ronald Acuna slump when it mattered most. They'll be in this position again soon, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think if you can make it to the final game against the clear best team in the entire sport, um, that's a really good sign of things to come. Uh, That lineup is really scary and... Uh, if you can get yourself a third and or fourth consistent starting pitcher, I think that you really have, you know, everything you need to be able to take that next step and, you know, potentially come out on the other end uh, of a game like this. And as for these Dodgers, we've been singing their praises. Didn't think they'd get here. It would be just another Los Angeles collapse yet again. For the time being, they are in the World Series. They will be playing the Tampa Bay Rays, of course. This is a battle of one seeds who play the game very similarly with big differences. If that makes any sense at all. The Rays are economical or cheap, depending on who you ask. And they have a cycle of players in and out. The Dodgers have the same emphasis on player development, but they have a Brinks truck at their disposal. It's modern baseball with old school problems when it comes to disparity in contracts and financial situations. The Rays are more of a well-oiled machine who rely on their player development staff and their minor league scouting to ensure that they are analytically ahead of the curve. They are considered the smallest market in baseball. They have the lowest attendance year after year, and yet they are still consistently good and have more World Series appearances since 2008 than those New York Yankees do that we talked about earlier. Very crazy that they're still around. And it's really a testament to the front office that has been cultivated there over the last decade plus. Andrew Freeman, of course, started out in Tampa Bay, uh, jumped ship to the Los Angeles Dodgers. So this is an Andrew Friedman World Series that he has his hands on. Now, Eric Neander is the GM. Chaim Bloom is now the GM of the Red Sox. He was a member of that front office staff as well. Going to be exciting for sure. Now, I wanted to get your opinion on this because there's an argument that I've heard from multiple people over the last couple of days. The Rays being as good as they are is bad for baseball because now big market teams will run their teams the same way. While there can be some kind of argument, I guess... Teams are already doing this. Moneyball, since Billy Bean's Moneyball took over, it's been an analytical revolution. Teams are less focused on one big guy and one big contract, unless they're Mike Trout, unless they're Bryce Harper, unless they're Manny Machado, unless they're Garrett Cole, and more about the team-first approach. Front offices are not choosing to be economical on their own. They just don't always have the luxury of nice owners. Stuart Sternberg has a reputation for being cheap. If the Rays had the Dodgers kind of money, I'm sure he'd be, they'd be going crazy if they really could. But that's not really how it happens. Another argument that I would like to 
bring up to you is that stars don't develop in places like Tampa. Did Evan Longoria and David Price not start in Tampa or am I imagining things? I believe they started in Tampa, Matt. This only happens if you don't let them. And in 2008, David Price was hyped. Evan Longoria and James Shields were not. And then become household names. Shields maybe for different reasons because he gave up Artelo Colon's home run. But Evan Longoria was Evan Longoria. They become stars with time and postseason experience. Is there any rebuttal to what I'm saying right now? I don't think there is. And, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, the issues that the game faces in terms of growing its appeal and you know, making inroads with our generation. I think that by allowing teams that aren't based in New York or Los Angeles to uh, have success and make it, you know, this deep into the postseason and have a national eye on them, you're allowing, you know, you're allowing people to get a feel for really exciting players who are, you know, just happen to be stuck on these small market teams. Uh, you know, you talk about a guy like Randy Rice whose praises I've been I've been singing all postseason. Terrifically exciting young player, but he's just this like random outfielder for the Tampa Bay Rays where, you know, your average, your average Joe who casually follows baseball, you know, they they had no idea who he was until a few weeks ago. And I think that this is a story that you see repeated kind of every, uh, every postseason when you have a small market team, uh, you know, go on a run and, and make it as far as they do. And I, I think it's important that, you know, you're able to give a spotlight on these, you know, talented and very engaging players. The game needs it. It can't afford not to. And if you want to talk about guys that are coming up, they have the most hyped up prospects since Vlad Jr. in the wings. That is Wanda Franco, of course. Just enjoy the game. They're going to be good. They're going to be known more, especially if they can make some inroads and give the Dodgers a competitive series and a run for their money. Now, Clayton Kershaw, of course, had a good first two starts of his playoffs, scratched due to the back injury, and then got lit up pretty hard. There is a disparity between his regular season and playoffs. It's not as drastic as some make it out to be. His whip and his expected FIP are close to identical regular season and post. But it is clear that something goes on. You can just look at a very simple ERA and notice that. Even in Game 4, the argument was being made that Dave Roberts left him in too long. That shouldn't be an issue with a guy like Clayton Kershaw leaving him in too long. It's not like he's a rookie that's just starting out or an aging veteran and is one last shot. This is one of the best pitchers that we will likely ever see in our lifetimes. And it's really fascinating that there is something to the idea that he does not pitch well in the playoffs. Aside from what we see on our own two eyes, is there anything that you could attribute that to? Aside from maybe there's something that analytics can't can't quantify and there's just a mental aspect to it? Yeah, I think I'm at a loss for words because when I think of Kershaw and the kind of stature he has in the game right now, it's him and it's Verlander. And those are, those are the two guys of our generation. And obviously Verlander, uh, a guy who's been quite successful um, whenever he's been on a, on a postseason team. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but obviously a huge part of that Astros championship team, I would say that uh, arguably he had the, out of all their star players, he was the cleanest insofar as there wasn't trash can banging to be tipping him off about hitters tendencies. You know, he, he pitched well on his own merit. So, and I'm, this is, this is not me trying to you know be an Astros defender all of a sudden, but just to speak to the fact that when you have a guy uh, who's that skilled, you know, they, they perform extremely, they, they're, they're supposed to perform extremely well in these high pressure situations. Uh, you know, he carried, you know, multiple Detroit teams uh, to the, to the, to the world series uh, earlier in his career. And so to have such a dramatic disparity between him and Kershaw, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. It's confusing as hell. Verlander has 14 wins, even though wins don't matter normally. I would, I would say that they have a little bit more weight in the postseason against 11 losses, a 3.4 ERA, 205 strikeouts, and 187 innings. This is going to follow Kershaw until he has a balls-to-the-wall performance 
and strikes out 11 over eight in one of these World Series games. If they don't get a championship, it's only going to be louder and louder. But sometimes he looks so masterful. One game I remember very vividly was game four of the NLDS against the Mets. And he just took them to town and brought the series back to LA. But I know Dave Roberts doesn't put him in great situations. He's been coming out of the bullpen a couple of times, got and does get left in too long. It's just weird that you have to deal with that for a guy as good as him and have to get the bullpen ready, willing and able at any point. It seems like very, through very brief analysis, Walker Bueller is the playoff ace that they of course wish Kershaw would be. I mean, I definitely agree about Bueller. Um, one comparison that does come to mind, though, is uh, his teammate David Price, who for many years, uh, you know, he obviously started off his postseason career um, absolutely stomping on the hearts of my Red Sox in Game 7 of that uh, 2008 ALCS. But after that, he kind of developed a similar reputation as, you know, obviously, you know, a top-tier starter in the regular season, but someone who couldn't really get it done in the playoffs. And I believe it was Game 5. Of the, of the 18 World Series, they, uh, Cora trots David Price out with a championship on the line. He puts in a fantastic performance. It's one of the main reasons the Red Sox were able to wrap it up so early in that series. And I remember you know, just thinking he finally got that monkey off his back and how great that must feel for him. Um, and so I think that with a guy like Kershaw, uh, even though he's got this reputation that, uh, that he's you know, kind of accumulated over his career, and like you said, something that will become more glaring if they, if they don't win this time. All it takes is one game for him to be the ace that he's shown himself to be for you know, over a decade. And I think it's you know, quite easy to see a lot of the negative history wiped away if he's able to accomplish that and give this Dodgers team its first title in over 30 years. I'm excited and I am rooting for him, even though I do want the Rays to win. Ailey's rivalries be damned. I like what they're doing and I like their brand of baseball. Has anything deterred you from picking the Dodgers in this one? Even though you've been on this team for since the beginning of the show, beginning of the podcast, rather. Is there anything swaying you at all based on how the Rays have performed, based on how the Dodgers have performed? I mean, I think it's going to be closer than I first anticipated. If you talked to me two months ago, I would have probably put the number of games the Dodgers would drop all postseason at maybe one or two tops. And I think that this Brave series showed that they're not infallible, that there are some, you know, there's some question marks in the bullpen. You guys are trying to, you know, Kershaw is Kershaw, as we've discussed to death. I still think I have to give the edge to this lineup, but it's going to be, it's going to be tighter than I would have thought earlier. I think, I think Dodgers in six, maybe even in seven. I'll go with Dodgers in six as well. I think Kevin Cash is going to pull out some good games as well. I think he's a better manager than Dave Roberts is, and that may, that, that may come into play at some point, especially when managing bullpens. The Dodgers are not known for using openers often, but Dustin May has worked in that capacity over the postseason. The Rays are much more adept at that. And now they have their days off back after going five straight and then seven straight. I think it's going to be very important that the right personnel moves are made. And even without the benefit of hindsight, just putting guys in to high leverage situations when they're better relievers and having the malleability on the on the bullpen side to make sure that everything works out. Looks like Kenley Jensen is back. Kenley Jensen's back in that closers role and has looked quite good, but he's going to have to come in in the seventh or the eighth at some point. I, I just know it. And that's what I like about playoff baseball. The most the strategic implications of every single move from the initial lineup to the pinch hitter to the pitchers that come in inning after inning. I am so very excited. This was such a great show, Sam. Is there anything else you want to bring up? I think we cover most of everything. Um, I'm, I'm excited too. And 
hopefully we get a we get a great World Series to follow up uh, these uh, LCSs. It'd be really anticlimactic if this is just like you know an easy sweep or something. But uh, knock on wood. That's not what we get. Would be very Game of Thrones-esque to just have a dud at the very end after all that buildup. That'll do it for On the Farm. We will see you next time. Sam Shapiro, Matt Kovitz. Have a great one, everybody.